Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is June 9th, 2014, and this is broadcast number 65. And thankfully, uh, in time before Dr. Piper heads out again, it seems he's always out doing something. But before he heads out, this time I think out of the country, um, we've had a chance today to sit down and do Faith and Practice segment number seven. So we're just going to jump right in. We have a number of really good questions, and um, I think you, the listener, will enjoy the answers to these questions that we've had sent in by you, the listener. And so we're just going to jump right in. We have, um, I think, six questions on tap for today, so we're going to just roll right into that at this point. As usual, I want to thank Dr. Piper for taking the time to sit down with us and go through this. Um, We try to have as much fun as we can while we do this um, podcast, so Hopefully today will be no exception to that. So question number one comes in from um, Drew, who writes in. And some of these names I think I've seen before, yep. but that's okay. That's that we, there's no rules. They're saying, you know, send them in. We that's want good. as many questions as you can, as you can send us. And uh, so anyway, Drew writes in from Clearwater, Florida. And it's a rather lengthy question, so just bear with me, and I'm just going to read the question part of what he wrote in. Here it is. My question is, do you think... The analogy of God's relation to creation being similar to that of an author's relation to his fictional world is, first, a valid analogy, and second, wise to use in discussing things such as God's sovereignty and man's will. If not, is there a valid analogy that is wise to use? Are we better off acknowledging that the issue is one that is complicated and not easily reducible in a way that would be satisfying as a soundbite? I ask because in engaging people, whether believers from another tradition or unbelievers on such issues, I find that it is unusual. It is usually not the case that a detailed and careful examination of the issue is feasible, and I'm wondering if in trying to address the issue with brevity, with an analogy, of, analogy like the one I referenced above, we often do more harm than good in trying to impart the truth of Scripture's teaching on the matter. As always, thank you for your time and consideration. The Lord be with you. Drew, thank you very much for a very thoughtful question. I was uh, first exposed to this analogy from uh, Dr. Anderson. I actually read the piece he used it in, and then he spoke at our conference. I think there's some usefulness to the analogy to help one understand that an author uh, can have characters do things that the author would not approve of, but for the author's purposes, they are important and necessary. So God has foreordained things that, according to his uh, revealed will, he would not approve of. But whatever God has foreordained will come to pass to be to his glory and the good of his elect. So I think the analogy can be helpful, but I would build it First, after going to the scriptures and looking at a couple of instances, and you can get on our sermon audio record of our last conference, I preached on Acts 27 uh, to deal with this issue in terms of God's coordination and man's responsibility. It's a good chapter to do this from because Paul, this is the shipwreck, And after two weeks of uh, struggling in this storm, Paul stands up and tells the uh, men in verses 21 to 26 to take food. He's received a message from God through an angel that he's going to stand before Caesar alive and that God is going for the sake of Paul to spare all those on the ship, but they must run aground. So he guarantees them. Uh, on the basis of divine revelation, that all are going to be spared. Then the sailors, as they realize they're getting closer and closer to land, uh, try to sneak off the boat. And Paul warns the centurion that if they go, you'll all perish. Now, did he forget what he just said, that all are going to be saved? No. What we see here is that God's decree takes into account uh, responsibility. Now, that's the positive part in the book of Acts. Let me go to Acts chapter 2, and we see how the Holy Spirit puts together sin and divine sovereignty. In Peter's sermon, 
he says with respect to Christ. In verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So here we see that God had foreordained it. The people were responsible. It was sin what they did to Christ. And ultimately, in dealing with this issue, I do go to the cross because mm. there we see the greatest offense ever in the history of the human race. We see men held responsible for that, and we see God foreordaining it. So we're not going to convince gainsayers, but they need to submit to Scripture. Right. And we also can't go beyond Scripture. We can't rationalize it. That's what happens when either a hyper-Calvinism, Arminianism. So we assert Scripture. I think the analogy of the author and the world that he creates is useful then uh, as an illustration uh, on a minor level of how this uh, works out. And you can also hear Dr. Anderson's uh, lecture on that sermon audio series as well. So, Drew, follow up if you want to, but I think this will – I hope this is helpful. Yeah, very good. And just um, as an aside – a commercial break, as it were. <laughs> um, you can get the conference lectures on the mobile app. And I failed to mention that in the beginning of the broadcast, but we do have a mobile app for those of you who have not been listening to this podcast ever in your life. But now you know. We have a mobile app. It's free. Just go to your respective whatever. I don't even know what they call them. Apple Store thing. But anyway, you can get it at the Apple Store and the Google Play Store. And all of our theology conferences, I'm getting the evil eye across the table because um, BlackBerry is, well, anyway, we're not going to have that conversation today. Um, uh, But anyway, you can get all of our theology conferences there on the mobile app. So hastening along now, before I get something thrown at me, we're going to move to question number two. Um, Pete writes in, I believe this is a first-time writer, uh, hopefully long-time listener, but um, he writes in, Really good question. Um, He says, the Senate of Dort, Article 1, Paragraph 17, says the following. Since we must make judgments about God's will from his word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they, together with their parents, are included, godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children, whom God calls out of this life in infancy. Now, his question is related to that, and he says, My friend and I had a discussion about this, and I would like to hear your understanding. Are all children who die in infancy bound for heaven, or only those with believing parents, that is, covenant children? Would you please address the scope and extent of the covenant of grace, along with the scope and extent of our condemnation in Adam as it pertains to this topic? And that's Pete writing in, I think I forgot to say, he's from Des Moines, Iowa. Pete, thank you for the question. For our hearers, the uh, Synod of Dort was a very important 17th century Reformation synod. We actually get our summary of the five points of Calvinism from the Synod of Dort, but they dealt with uh, many broader issues as well, such as the relationship of covenant children to election, as in this quotation. The Westminster Confession says that elect infants dying in infancy uh, are saved. And I think that's a wise answer. But I would agree with the Synod of Dort in saying that parents of believing, professing believing parents who have children who die in infancy should not doubt the election and salvation of their children. The children are in the covenant with God, are holy, are covenantally covered. And I think we assume then that when, if God takes them in infancy that he, uh, they are elect. The scripture we use for that In addition to the general premises from election and the covenant, the scripture we use would be David's confidence when his infant died that he would be joined to that infant. He no longer mourned as he was pleading with God to spare the child. So I I think there's biblical warrant for that. Now, in the 19th century, a great number of our Reformed fathers came to the conclusion that all children dying in infancy uh, were elect. And they argued that uh, God, in his mercy as well as his justice, would not condemn 
someone to hell merely for the guilt of Adam's first transgression. And so on that basis, they said since the child had not committed any sin, deliberate sin of his own, that God would have chosen that child and took him in infancy. I, I just think that goes too far, and I would agree. I, I think that children who die, who are not, their parents are not in the covenant, I think some of them are elect. I think from around the world, God probably has taken children to himself. You think about the uh, child of the wicked king uh, in the northern kingdom, and God said in him alone was there something good. He died mm-hmm. as, a, as a child. Uh, God took him. So I, I don't think that all children have to be in the covenant to be saved, but I think we can have no specific confidence on a broader basis. But in the covenant, I'm myself perfectly happy, and I have done so often as a pastor, to assure Christian parents that I believed that their uh, child was in heaven. Hmm. Oh, now the other part, the scope and extent of our condemnation in Adam, I, I touched on that. We all are born with the guilt of Adam's first sin, and because of that, the corruption of our nature. I think that's the problem with the um, attitude of our fathers in the 19th century. It wasn't just the guilt. There was a corruption of, uh, of nature. So that is sufficient grounds for God <clears throat> in perfect justice to condemn even a newborn to hell. Uh, on the other hand, uh, God does regenerate infants. And when we say that these infants are in heaven, it's not just because of their parents. They are born again by the Holy Spirit and would have in their hearts the seed of faith. If they had grown up, that faith would have exercised itself, but dying before it could have done so through their normal faculties. But we would always assume regeneration on behalf of such a child that goes to heaven. Mm-hmm. Very good. I know that subject is one of, and Dr. Pipe has mentioned it already, it's as much a theological issue as a pastoral one. Those of you who are... Um, pastoring now, um, no doubt have uh, possibly, I would suspect, um, had to deal with this. I think some... you meant it's as much a pastoral issue as it is a theological yeah, issue. Yeah, what did I say? Other way around, I think. Yeah, okay. Well, it's Monday. That's my excuse. It's not a very good one, but that's my excuse. Um, I'm but anyway, <laughs> I'm in a fog too. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it is much. It is a pastoral issue because <clears throat> and pastors uh, will face this. And and how do you? bring real comfort to the Christian parents um, in those situations. Um, we've had it in our own seminary community. We've experienced it. And so you see these things, and you try to answer them theologically, but also pastorally, and that, I think, this issue, if, if not others, really fleshes that out for us as we consider these matters. All right, another first-time writer writes in, Randall from Manchester, Missouri, Uh, I had to make sure I had the abbreviation correct. I didn't want to make an error, but it is Missouri. Manchester, Missouri writes in. He says, thank you, uh, you, brother, for your faithful ministry of teaching, preaching, and preparing men for gospel ministry. The question, the scriptures clearly teach that homosexuality is sinful. Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and so on. There seems to be a great deal of equivocation among evangelicals on whether same-sex attraction per se is sinful. Given the uh, sinful orientation of such attractions, I am persuaded that same-sex attraction is sinful even if not acted out. Others would argue that temptation is not sinful, but I would not concur with that assessment in same-sex attraction. How does one best respond to this important issue? We had this discussion, albeit briefly, in class last semester, I believe, we touched on this. Yeah, man and sin, we did. You know, Randall, this is, uh, I think you've cut right to the heart of the issue I'm afraid that we're going to see a continued compromise Mm. uh, in the uh, evangelical church uh, on this issue. Uh, Let me affirm some things you say right off. Homosexuality is clearly a sin. It's not just condemned in the Old Testament. It's condemned, as you point out, in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, the practicing homosexual does not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Um, And so this business that, well, the Bible is only dealing with 
promiscuous homosexuality or things like that is absurd. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul, who obviously knew a great deal about homosexual culture, uses two terms, one for the male, male homosexual in the partnership and one for the feminine, uh, so to speak, homosexual in the partnership, whether it's two women or two men. There's obviously, they can't escape that fact. There's always a book, um, I forgot the word that starts with a B for in, the, in the women, um, but there's a, there's a male character and a female character. Uh, so homosexuality and homosexual marriage are wrong. We'll tell them what kind of trouble we'll get into for saying this, but it is. It's a sin, and we must not back down. We must be loving uh, when we condemn this as a sin, but we need to not compromise the Word of God for fear of persecution. And I'm afraid we're going to see a lot more backtracking. And we're, and we're beginning to see it now in this whole matter of uh, same-sex attraction. A few years ago, I think there would have been a fairly <clears throat> unanimous opinion in uh, real Bible-believing evangelicals that same-sex attraction uh, itself is a sin. Uh, now, this is where the wall is first beginning to break. It ties into the fact that some people are genetically oriented uh, to same-sex attraction. And I agree with you, Randall. Um, no temptation is a sin, but lust are sin. So my heterosexual lust, Christ says in Matthew chapter 5, I've committed adultery in my heart. So you don't have to act out physically uh, your lust to uh, sin. Now, same-sex attraction is a perversion. And I say this humbly. Uh, it can be, there can be a people who would have a certain. We get the whole discussion of nurture and environment, uh, the way they were raised, perhaps the way they're wired. That might become their besetting sin. The same way someone else would abuse alcohol or work, um, but. It's a sin, and it's a sin of choice. Mm -hmm. And so by a person training themselves or being trained, they have developed an unnatural attraction to the same sex. It's not something merely genetics. It is an act of the will. And I think because it's an act of the will, then we need to say that it is sin. Now, is it... <clears throat> The soul damning sin of 1 Corinthians 6, no. Uh, if a person has the same-sex attraction and they are wrestling uh, with that and are not giving in to it, uh, thank be to the Lord. But they need to understand that they can, by God's grace in Christ Jesus, retrain their wills. Our emotions are not the Lord, nor are our affections uh, under Christ, who is our Lord, our wills will, should affect our emotions. And so I believe that we need to be much bolder and tell these people that, uh, yes, you've got same-sex attraction, can't argue with that, but you need to confess it as a sin and seek God's grace now to reorient yourself. Because it's clearly a perversion from the creation order. Whereas a temptation to look on a woman with lust but might put it this way, it's perfectly natural. That is the proper sexual appetite, and that sexual appetite must also be uh, controlled, and the will must be exercised so as not to lust. But homosexual attraction is not a proper sexual appetite. Paul says clearly in Romans chapter 1, it is a perversion. And so I don't think we're helping uh, Christians who have uh, this struggle uh, by just letting them think you can live all your life with this. They don't have to live all their life with same-sex attraction. They can, I believe, by God's grace, overcome it. Mm. Thank you, Randall, for a very thoughtful question. Yeah, and a difficult subject, uh, especially as we see, um, Dr. Pipe, especially as we see it not only affecting the church, but we see it, especially in the United States, those who don't listen in, in this country may be not aware of 
the ground we've been given, the states have one by one have been just falling over, as it were, because of the courts. Well, it's all over the world. The president in Brazil almost unconstitutionally pushed this through. In Nigeria, the uh, president stopped it from going through. Uh, and so there you got an African country, a South American country, obviously all of Europe. Uh, and actually the things that I've just said are not at this point against the law, but with this absurdity of trying to make homosexuality a civil liberty, uh, we are going to be at a point where when a Christian seeks to teach on God's word, uh, going to be accused of breaking civil rights laws. Yeah, hate speech Yeah, is what it will end up being coined. Um, and, and I've said to some of the students even here that I think those being trained for the ministry, especially in today's culture, are going to face this in a way that maybe many of our fathers before us have never had a face. Um, are you going to preach the scriptures from the pulpit and call it what it is, knowing full well that someone in that congregation could blow you into the civil authorities and you could go to jail? I mean, this is going to be one of those issues. It already is in Canada. Now, the government backed off some, and so I think that there's been less uh, uh, prosecution and persecution, but they have uh, laws that could be applied to preachers already. Hmm. Scary days ahead, but uh, we shall not fear the civil magistrates um, anyway. But very good question, and one that is very relevant to uh, everything we're facing as Christians in today's culture. Darren writes in from, I'm going to say, I hope I say this right, Darren. Please forgive me if I don't, but it's Owasso, Oklahoma, I believe. Owasso, Oklahoma. Darren writes in, he says, in a recent GPTS podcast, there was a brief discussion regarding fundamentalists. So now we're on the other end of the spectrum now. Now we're, yeah. So anyway, recent discussion regarding fundamentalists. I seem to hear this label used by various people in various manners. And it's really a two-part question. First, how do you define the term? And second, to what degree do you view fundamentalists favorably or and or unfavorably? Third, it's a three-part question. Third, if, you answer to the, if your answer to the second question does not make it readily apparent, are you a fundamentalist? Are those at GPTS fundamentalists? And fourth, go to Greco to jail, and if you pass, go to collect $200. <laughs> right. Darren, this is a, a, a very interesting question, and we have such a probably have our most controversial questions of the program uh, today, and I appreciate that. I've been looking forward to the broadcasts since I read the questions. Let me first ask our host, do you recall the discussion on fundamentalism? You know, it's funny. I read I read the question, and I and he says it's it's uh, uh, program forty eight. I didn't look to see what program forty eight was. I don't remember the discussion. Now, it doesn't mean we didn't have it because I tend to go off on right. tangents. So who knows? We maybe talked about it, um, but but he seems to remember. It sounds that we like something about that Nick Doctor Wilborn would have discussed. Maybe, but, but forty eight. That was a long time ago. It was. We're at sixty four, sixty five. Well, Darren, let me put us like this first. There's a historical definition to fundamentalism. The Fundamentals, a book edited by, I think it was Dr. Orr. This was in the early part of the 20th century when liberalism was on the rise. And uh, the, the book of the Fundamentals, I have this, the, the volumes in my library, set forth a biblical defense of all of the major doctrines of the, uh, of the Bible. And so they were called fundamentalists. Now, interestingly, uh, one of the fundamentals was uh, creation over against evolution, but it wasn't six-day creation. Most of these men were day-agers at that time. So one of the things that people like me in the seminary would say is a fundamental of the faith, and that is uh, six-normal-day creation. For those people, uh, that's not where they were drawing the line at that point. But in most of the other doctrines, uh, they were simply affirming uh, the biblical. So men like Machen and others would, in a sense, have been fundamentalists because they were fighting for the fundamentals of the Christian faith. But uh, broader evangelicals, and particularly dispensationalists, I would think, hijacked the movement and the term. And so... It came to the point where fundamentalists became those that, yes, would affirm the fundamentals of the 
inspiration, inerrancy of Scripture, substitutionary atonement, of course, the deity of Christ, personal resurrection, the second coming. But they also would have primarily been dispensationalist, premillennialist. And they also began to develop a legalism. Now, legalism uh, is often misapplied to those of us that take God's law seriously. That's not legalism. Legalism is one of two things. It's trying to earn God's favor by my obedience or adding uh, laws to God's law uh, in order to help people not sin. Same thing the Pharisees did in the days of Christ. So the the fundamentalist today, the legalist, would be um, have rules with respect to uh, even against the moderate use of alcohol or tobacco or uh, going to a movie and whatever each person's list becomes after that, and they're adding to the Word of God. So fundamentalism today is much more tied into broad evangelicals who would hold to uh, the fundamental doctrines of the Bible, would primarily be premillennial and often some sort of dispensationalist, it seems to me, and would have these um, man-made laws. Then the other part of modern fundamentalism is second-degree separation. Hmm. So not only should my church not be part, let's say, of the National Council of Churches, but if your church has a relationship with the National Council of Churches, I can't have a relationship with your church. Right. And if some actually have third-degree uh, separation. So separation is also a very important part, I think, of the modern concept of fundamentalism. So the fundamentalist initially were men contending for the faith. The term, though, historically, I think by the end of the 20th century, uh, had taken on this much more narrow uh, way that I've tried to define it. So uh, to what degree do you view fundamentalists favorably or unfavorably? Well, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm to love them. I would much rather be uh, on a plane with a Christian uh, than with a gross uh, pagan. Uh, I rejoice when I hear of God's grace in people's lives and how he converted them, um, uh, things like that. Uh, so as any uh, person who trusts Christ, I treat them as a brother. But fundamentalism, I don't think it has a biblical balance. Mm. And um, so then am I a fundamentalist? No. Nor is anybody at GPTS a fundamentalist <laughs> in that we would hold to the fundamentals which are clearly set forth in the, in the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism, which we subscribe to uh, without reservation. But uh, we're not dispensationalist. Uh, none on the faculty are premillennial, and we're not uh, legalists, as I've described, either form of legalism. But actually, I go a step further. I don't consider myself an evangelical either. I think a Reformed Christian uh, is distinct today. You know, Warfield said that Calvinism is really Christianity coming to its own. I think that's true. And probably would have been a time when there had been much less division. But today, evangelicalism is so broad in its uh, scope, uh, even take the issue we just discussed of homosexuality, uh, the extent of the atonement, but also the nature of the atonement, all these things. So uh, we, we basically look at ourselves as Reformed Christians in the Reformation tradition, subscribing to the Westminster Standards and the free forms of unity. But we treat, I trust, with real love and affection, all those who name the name of Christ and would gladly um, pray with them and encourage them and be encouraged by them. Hmm. Really good question, and, and again, one like the previous question was um, really geared around the, the cultural issues that we've been facing. And Dr. Piper's right. I think that the whole fundamentalist ideology, I mean, it has, the, the term has evolved, as it were, um, 
in the last hundred years or so. I think the particulars you were referencing as far as doctrine would be the virgin birth and, and, and the deity of Christ, the resurrection, the second coming. Those all Christians have to affirm. Right. I mean, so to say that's fundamentalism, I think, is unfair. Um, it, it, that's just, you have to believe those things. Um, if you're going to say you're a Christian, those are things that just have to be there. Um, but then going beyond that and adding all this other baggage to these things. And, you know, you kind of get, we could even get into a discussion here about the question of liberty of conscience and what is it that, that God has allowed his people to do as Christians? Are we allowed to do certain things that other Christians, for conscience reasons, don't feel comfortable doing? And, and fundamentalists somewhat, sometimes, I think, try to draw too narrow a line uh, in this subject. And um, so if, if, for instance, if I have a, a glass of wine with my wife at dinner, a fundamentalist might be a little annoyed by that act. So I hope that helps. It's a, it's a really good question, uh, regardless of my poor <laughs> editorializing there. So, moving on, of course, quickly. Um, number five comes in from, this is um, one of two out of the country, out of the United States um, questions, comes in from, and I'm going to hope I'm going to do this right, Davi. Davi. Davi, and I, I'm not even trying to guess the last name. Horesma. There you go. Say that again? No. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I think I know Davi. So. Yeah, okay, very good. Well, anyway, he writes in, from Brazil, and uh, he says, In Brazil, where the Reformed Church is recent, people, when they talk about the Lord's Day, think this day is limited by what you can and what you can't do. That it, That's not new in Brazil. I mean, that's not just for Brazil. That's, no, but he's I mean, this is a new, newer, newer issue for them. Yeah, that, yeah that's That's everywhere. what he's saying. Yeah. Now he goes on, For sure, 100%, 100% who think like that don't understand what this day means. What would you say about people who condemn other people to go out to eat pizza with brothers with their brothers in Christ? Um, Thank you, Davi. Um, you're right when you focus in here that the day is much more than a list of what you can and can't do. The the day the Puritans called it the market day of the soul. It's a day to cultivate your relationship with God and do those things. And devote yourself to, as the Confession of Faith says, the duties of public and private worship and those deeds of necessity and mercy. And we need to focus positively then on the day as a wonderful means of grace, as we see in Isaiah 58, 13, and 14. But on the other hand, uh, the commandment clearly says that you're not to work nor are you to cause others to work outside those deeds of necessity and mercy. Now, it's interesting. We want to get upset when somebody says you shouldn't go out to eat recreationally on the Lord's Day. You shouldn't say that that's a sin, but we don't take that view to pornography or one of the other um, inferences, so to speak, that's not clearly mentioned in Scripture, but work out of other commandments. And so the seventh commandment we would say in, would be against us going out to eat recreationally. I say that because if a person is traveling, and, and I encourage people, if you, you stay in a, in a hotel, you can eat the breakfast there in the hotel. That's provided. Uh, that is a deed of necessity. But freestanding restaurants where all the Christians go, uh, I think that's a sin. And so uh, now condemn, that's a strong word, um, and you might want to say I'm condemning, but I, I will say it's a sin, but I'm very patient. I don't, every time I see somebody doing that, get on their case. I go preach at a church somewhere, and uh, I see that people are going out to eat. I don't correct them. If I were their pastor, I would slowly move uh, uh, pastorally and try to deal with that. But you, but you see, Davi, the problem is that you're causing others to work. And oftentimes... Uh, I'm in a restaurant here on a weekday in, in Greenville, South Carolina, and I'll engage the waiter or waitress in conversation, and I invite them to church. You know, I really like to go, but I can't. I have to work on Sundays. And then in the South, we have restaurants that actually, if you bring your bulletin in, they'll give you a 10 or 15% discount. And so the restaurants are full of, quote, Christians on the Lord's Day. How glorious and how much better for the gospel 
it would be if all but necessary places uh, were closed on the Lord's Day. So I think it is a sin, causing others to work. It is a violation of the fourth commandment. It clearly states in there, you nor your son nor your daughter, your manservant or your maidservant. Well, in our culture, public servants, when I worked in retail, that's, we were taught that we were, we were servants. And today, a lot of people in retail don't have that attitude, but that's how I was taught. Uh, we're causing people to work, and I think that is a sin. So we don't want to come across condemning. We want to encourage people, though, to examine their attitude and devote this day not only for themselves, but for the Lord. Well, then I'm asked, well, what about you know my wife? Then that means she has to be working in uh, the kitchen. Well, a lot of prep- food preparation may be done uh, the day before. Um, crock pots, I guess you have those in Brazil, are great inventions where you can throw a roast in the crock pot, let it just cook while you're out and about at church, and you come home and 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 dinner is ready. Plus the family. Uh, I pitch in more on on Sundays, uh, particularly if we have company over and help my wife in the kitchen. Uh, When you have children, uh, they should be trained to take that pressure off of mom as well. So, or just to eat leftovers or sandwiches or whatever. So we can structure ourselves uh, even to make it better for uh, mom at home. But all of this, so we're freed up to enjoy the Lord and others are freed up to enjoy the Lord or to be evangelized on his day? Yeah, very good question. And I think you touched on this. There are things that we do on the Lord's Day that are necessities. Um, You know, my brother's a police officer. He has to work on the Lord's Day. Um, People break the law on the Lord's Day. You need the law there to prevent people from breaking the law on the Lord's Day. Um, My wife works in the nursing industry. Uh, People get sick on Sunday. Um, and sometimes she has to work on the Lord's Day, but because she's caregiving for people who are infirmed or sick, it just happened to us yesterday. Got called in, and we've had this conversation. Uh, uh, her and I have had this conversation, and um, she and I, she and I have had this conversation. I'm getting the, the I'm getting the 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 the, the goo goo eyes across the table. Well, that's not the right word. Anyway, I'm getting the look across the table. <laughs> Oh, you got a shaking of the head. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I got the look, too. That look. If you don't sit in Dr. Pepper's classes, you don't even have any clue what I'm talking about. But it's that look, like, of disapproval. Um, she and I had this conversation um, together, husband and wife. and she and she was conversation. It was together. And, and she was... Um, she was uh, concerned that she was breaking the Lord's Day by working on Sunday in that particular field, and I assured her that she's not, because people do get sick. So there are these works of necessity that are, that are involved. But I worked as Dr. Piper. I worked in the retail industry as well, and that was a big problem for me. And that's why I left the retail industry, primarily, because of this reason. I was causing, because other people were coming to the store, they were cause, forcing me to work, and as a manager in the retail industry, I was scheduling people to work on the Lord's Day. So I was really in a double whammy uh, on the Lord's Day. So I resigned from that field because of those issues. So really good question and good answer. And one I wish the church would think more about, really. Um, we, we complain about our culture, right, Dr. Piper? We, we, say, we say a lot of things about the country, the way it's headed, things that are going on. But Christians... There are certain things in Scripture that are so abundantly obvious and We've clear. Advocated. We've have created the vacuum that and everything we, else was right. And and then we what we're the first ones to cry about the culture that we're contributing to, right? Right. And so we should think more about these subjects. Well, the last question today, I did get one that just came in. If you want to deal with it, but what um, time is it? We'll tell you. Um, twelve fifty-six. Okay, we're fine. Yeah, we can deal with it. Um, David Morgan writes in from England. And a very short question. What advice would you give to those wanting to best prepare themselves and their families for corporate worship in general and the Lord's Supper in particular? David, thank you very much. And I'm glad you're thinking about preparation both for corporate worship and for uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, With respect to corporate worship, uh, actually in my book on the Lord's Day, which you can get through Amazon.com, I have a chapter on... uh, preparing 
uh, for worship and for the Lord's Day. There's physical preparation. We need to be sure that everything's ready. We've food in the refrigerator, gasoline, petrol for you in the car, and then um, children's clothes clean, laid out, all that kind of stuff, that we're properly rested. So often we think we can sleep later, and so we wear ourselves out either doing too much work or play on Saturday, or we stay up late, and then we are worn out for the greatest work of the week. So there's physical preparation and spiritual preparation uh, in the morning, uh, Sunday mornings, to be sure everybody's up early enough to be uh, bright, alert, perhaps to have some hymns or psalms playing on the uh, uh, CD player, sing together, pray. Of course, if you're doing uh, family worship every day, then you're, in a sense, moving through the week toward the Lord's Day. Many churches make available now to uh, families with children the hymns that will be sung the next Lord's Day, the scripture that will be dealt with, and the preachings, you can actually uh, practice those hymns and review that scripture with your, uh, your family and your children. But it is uh, for those that can meditate then to meditate on God, his attributes, uh, his work, and those things in our lives. So I deal with that. But actually, larger catechism seven, 171 and how are they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before they come unto it, not only would help us with respect to the Lord's Supper, but really the general preparation as well. They that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are before they come to prepare themselves thereunto by examining themselves that are being in Christ, their sins and wants. So am I resting in Christ alone for my salvation? What are my sins, my besetting sins, what are my needs, my lack of love of God, my mind wandering in worship, my prevailing lust, whatever, of the truth and measure of their knowledge, faith, and repentance? Am I growing in my grasp of God's truth? Is my faith and repentance being strengthened? Are my faith and repentance being strengthened? Love to God and the brethren, charity to all men, forgiving those that have done them wrong. Are there desires after Christ? Are there new obedience? Remember the definition for repentance is a, a, a work of God's grace whereby a sinner out of due sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth turn from his sin um, with full purpose of, unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. So am I growing in my ability to obey by renewing the exercise of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer? So it's a very good guide, both for preparing for the Lord's Supper and a guide for preparing really for uh, weekly worship. So may the Lord bless you and your family as you do this. Very good. What's the sixth? What's the next question? Very good question. Now, this one comes in, um, just came in as we were doing this broadcast. So Dr. Weber hasn't had a chance to see it, um, but I don't think it's difficult. Um, but here's the question. Jeremy writes him from Bellevue, Nebraska. And he says, this question came up during family worship, but what can or should be drawn, if anything, from there not being apostolic benediction at the end of the book of James? Jeremy. Now, again, this was a blind question. So I commend you for family worship. It's really exciting. I mean, it, it, you know, we get, here's a question from England. Here's obviously a family taking seriously family worship and preparation for the Lord's Day. Here's right after it a question from Nebraska about family worship. And it's one of the things that encourages me so much today is, is we see so much in the culture that's going down as, as we see in our Reformation tradition churches, uh, so many things being practiced. Now, I was raised a pagan, Roman Catholic pagan, uh, converted in high school, but my wife was raised in a very typical Southern evangelical home and uh, she will say that uh, in her entire experience as a young person, and she professed Christ personally at 12, but her entire experience she witnessed one time in a neighbor's home, family worship. Mm. So the fact that so many families today are doing that. And um, interesting question, the apostolic benediction is not in all of Paul's epistles, and so I would make nothing out of it. Uh, each writer 
um, as he's led by the Holy Spirit, has specific intentions and purposes in mind. Plus, we recognize that James is what we call a general epistle. So James and First and Second Peter, First and Second and Third. Well, James and First and Second Peter in particular, Hebrews, written to uh, lots of churches. So. Um, the apostolic benediction is not in all of the books, nor is the salutation that is the, Paul often begins with the books. Is that the question? That's my question. Oh, okay. So this isn't TV, so I was just handing him a piece of paper so he could deal with my question as he's talking. So we've messed that up. So anyway, <laughs> so... Uh, it, it's no no ability there. Now, perhaps this is coming out of... Uh, should James be in the Bible, and was James an apostle? Not all the writers of Scripture were apostles, but all wrote with apostolic authority. So Mark wrote under the authority of Paul and Peter. Uh, James and Jude, as brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, were a part of really the um, leadership group in the Jerusalem church. And James, in God's providence, became what we would refer to as the senior pastor mm-hmm. of the Jerusalem church. And so he, we, tell, we can see from Acts chapter 15 that he had, even with apostles present, Peter and Paul, James was the um, moderator of the Jerusalem council. So he had clear Christ-given authority and... We believe that these books that are in the Bible are all there by the work of the Holy Spirit, and he's the one that put the Bible together. So uh, he wrote with apostolic authority, even though he wasn't an apostle, but there's nothing untoward the fact that some of the New Testament epistles don't have benedictions. We use benedictions because we find them both in the Old and New Testament, and they're given to God's people as the word from God at the end of worship, and they should be given by an ordained minister. And they are not prayers. They are blessings that God speaks to the people through the minister. Yep. Yeah, very interesting question and a good observation. Um, I don't think I'd ever thought of that, actually. Yeah, I wonder if one of his children asked that question. Bill, before we sign off, let me just mention a couple things. Maybe you were going to. Uh, the end of July, the last week of July, we're having a, an old but new course. Uh, Dr. Smith, for years, has taught the course on Southern Presbyterian Theology. Dr. Smith has retired uh, Dr. Nick Wilborn, who's adjunct professor with us, is going to teach that course uh, this summer, the last week of July. We invite people far and wide to come and uh, take that course, and it's going to include a historic tour of Columbia and Charleston. So it's a great bring your wife and come and have a little mini vacation as well. Uh, Charleston in particular is a very romantic city. Uh, and then the week after that will be our Summer Institute, which we do particularly for ministers and leaders in the church. And it's going to be this year taught by um, Dr. Ray Heipel, who has uh, done work on uh, preaching that motivates based on the sermons in the book of Acts. Yeah. So we're very excited about that course as well. So look at the website or at Bill's um, two-thirds good mobile app and uh, check out those courses come and make two weeks of it uh, but if you can't make two weeks of it come to one or the other and and just so everybody knows the two-thirds reference is just because it's not on blackberry what that that, that, don't even go there (laughs) we're not having that conversation today (laughs) maybe another day another time but not today but yes, go to the website, that's gpts.edu, in case you didn't know. Um, and there, I, I do believe, even at this moment, there is a banner for it, for the Summer Institute and the class that Dr. Puppet just talked about. You click on that banner, obviously, and it'll take you to all the information, how to register, who to talk to, got questions, who to write. So gpts.edu. Tell your friends about the podcast and about faith and practice segment of the podcast. And also, I would encourage some of the children out there it mm. might be that this last question came from a child at family worship. I don't know, but we'd love to hear from some of the children, young people as well. Absolutely. All right in. 
and uh, people who have written in the past can write again. Uh, we've had people do that. Please do. Um, send your questions in. The website, confessingourhope.com. There's a form there. It's very easy. You fill it out. You get a return email that uh, shows that you sent your question in, and that's your confirmation that I've received it. And Dr. Piper, as always, will review them, and then we will deal with the ones that he has picked for the program. So confessingourhope.com. And we're up to date. We have no yes, we are. standing questions. We and are. also remember, you get a free book if I answer your question that's on right. there. That's right. As long as I'm diligent to get everything done. But anyway, coming up on the program, a very interesting discussion. We'll be talking with Pastor Bill Shisko, and he is uh, the pastor of Franklin Square OPC in Long Island. So I get to talk with a fellow New Yorker. I'm looking forward to that very much. But he'll be on to talk about training ruling elders, what processes they go through. Um, I've seen his material. It is extensive, and in, as it were, as it is very good. So you want to tune into this program, especially those of you who may be ruling elders now and may have an occasion to train ruling elders or teaching elders who train ruling elders, however it works in your church. You want to listen to this program. It's very going to be very, very informative and helpful, I think. Let me piggyback here. The seminary offers uh, two courses, uh, one for elders and one for deacons, called Master of Ministry for Ruling Elders, Master of Ministry for Deacons. We do this to assist the churches. So current elders and deacons are men approved by their session, can do this two-year curriculum. You can take more than two years, um, all by distance, and get really thorough grounding both in theology and practice for your work as elder or deacon. Yep. Yeah, outstanding plug. We don't talk much about that, and we should, actually, uh, more so on the program, but um, good plug for that um, that cur- curriculum that we offer here at the seminary. So until that um, interview with uh, Pastor Bill Shisco, I believe it's June 20th is when it will be released, uh, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless. Mm-hmm.